for listening to the MicroBinfi podcast. Here we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There's so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody really writes it down. There's no manual, and it is assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan of Enterobase, Rape Tree, and Break Fame, and Dr. Andrew Page of such works as Plasmatron 5000, Rory, and Govitz. I am Dr. Lee Katz, and you might know me from my tree-making pipeline mastery or my SNP pipeline live set. Both Nabil and Andrew work at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where we work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct professor at the University of Georgia in the US. Guys, whenever we go online and we talk about Perl or Python, someone is always talking trash about Perl or Python. And here's maybe an innocent question. Should I learn Perl or Python when I first start off learning bioinformatics? Hello and welcome to MicroBinfi Podcast. Here we're going to be discussing, should I learn Perl or Python? And maybe some other questions not to ask. Yeah, I think, uh, so this is a question I think we've all had from the past from people who are just getting started. And they see a lot of information about Perl and a lot of information about Python in terms of bioinformatics. And they simply ask, which is better? And that is a very loaded question, depending who you talk to. So uh, just if nobody knows, what is Perl? Well, Perl is a really old language, and it's fantastic for, I suppose, doing text munging. And Perl can give you a lot of stuff, but then it's a bit messy if you don't do it properly. So a bit of a trade-off there. And then Python is this beautiful, more modern language, which is object-oriented, and it's a lot prettier. There's only one way to do things, whereas with Perl, there's about a million ways to do things. So, you know, they're slightly different. And Perl is seen as, I suppose, more of a, an older language. It's the first language that got uh, embedded in bioinformatics, whereas Python is just more uh, more of a recent addition. I think Python is quite is older, but yeah, certainly this. I think there's been a switch in the last few years away from Perl to Python. Python is definitely more popular with people my age, I suppose. Oh, you're showing your age now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you We're, calling us old? Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, we should first like clear that up. Who is Perl, who's a Pythonista or a Perl person? Well, um, I've done quite a lot of Perl in my time, but it's one of about a dozen languages I've programmed in my time because I come up from a software engineering background, and I've been programming for about twenty years. So you can probably guess my age from that. But uh, so I started off doing a lot of Perl, and now I've moved into Python. But for me, it makes no difference what language you're programming as long as you have the same kind of fundamental. Uh, things behind you, it, you know, you can apply it to any programming language. And what about you, Lee? I've been doing Perl since uh, 2004. It was basically told to us in grad school, here's the programming language that you should learn. This is Perl. Everyone's learning it. And go. And uh, we had to basically learn it on our own in class and in the lab and on our projects. You know, I think for my, myself, I started off, so I did software engineering in undergrad, and that was Java, but the first thing they taught us was don't worry about the language. It's got nothing to do with the language. Uh, it's it's really about the conceptual problem you're trying to solve with with your programming. And so I did a lot of Java. Then did I did Perl in the first two years of my PhD, like when I first started doing bioinformatics, because that was what that was the lab lingua franca. And then when I was more comfortable, I switched over to Python and haven't really looked at Perl code since. Yeah. So I I mean I made the switch over because from Perl to Python because I thought, okay, I can see Perl is kind of dying off now, so I might as well force myself to move into Python, which is a lot prettier and all that. 
but I've done a lot of uh, Perl in a, I suppose, a different style to more traditional Perl, where, whereas I've gone and used modern Perl and objects and unit testing and distilla, like for packaging up all the the code into an easily installable thing. So it looks quite different to a lot of the this hacky Perl, which uh, people are more familiar with. Yeah, I, I really like the way that you program in Perl. I never moved on myself to Python. I've tried it a few different times, but what I did in the end was just forced myself to write prettier Perl. That's good. <laughs> I, I think that's, I think no matter what language it is, bad code is bad code. You can Absolutely. write, and no language, no yep. syntax is going to prevent you from writing ter- up, like absolute abominations. But Lee, why do you stick with Perl then, since everyone's made the switch? And Perl is dead, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, people like to tell me that a lot. It's dead, and, and I keep programming in it, so it must be alive. <laughs> um, I think that the the big thing is that people like to to say that it's dead because um, they hate looking at Perl code. It's always messy whenever someone sees it. And what I did was I just forced myself to um, write in a really nice manner. Um, I picked a I picked up a, a nice coding style from another fellow graduate student at Georgia Tech. And I can I can post a a link to my blog on how I wrote on that in the show notes. Um, but I don't know that. Then how do other people look at it? I think that they look at the dwindling CPAN releases. So I saw this uh, blog article one time um, in August that just like graphed how many people are posting to CPAN, the Perl repository, versus PyPy, the Python repository. And currently it looks like it's about 20 to 30 daily uploads to CPAN versus seven to 800 daily uploads to PyPy, which is incredible. That means that people are developing less on Perl. On one hand, some people are thinking that that means that it's becoming more mature. On, on the other hand, people are just saying like people are just developing less in it and maybe people are switching more over to Python. Most of the Perl code that people in bioinformatics think about is not in CPAN. It's just these hacky scripts, you know, you might have 500 lines with no comments and it's all just one big blob. Whereas a lot of the more, the stuff in CPAN is much more engineered and is, you know, proper professional software. That's a good point. So along those lines, I would say, um, I would, I'll challenge you all to kind of discuss the bio library in any given language. So the professional piece of code for bioinformatics usually is BioPerl for Perl, when we're talking about Perl. Um, or there's some other more minor ones, um, usually under the BioX uh, module domain. And uh, so BioPerl is just like what we use usually when we're programming in Perl and bioinformatics. Uh, what, o- what about Python? Yeah, Python is BioPython, and that's phenomenally useful. But still, it's missing things that, uh, that BioPerl has. Lee, what do you think about Perl 6? It's been coming for about 20 years, as far as I remember. But because it's called Perl 6 versus what we have as Perl 5, like people keep bringing it up, and I have nothing to do with it. And I, and I really like this uh, blog post that we can also put in the show notes where people are basically saying, okay, Perl 6 was supposed to be a successor of Perl 5, but it's changed so much. Mm-hmm. And Perl 5 has a different everything, such legacy code and everything, that, okay, we're just going to call Perl 6 Raku, and now it's a different language. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. So I think that it's um, it's great. I think people should probably check out Raku. I just haven't done that myself. I can, I can again, point you to the, the show notes. Awesome. So uh, Python, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind actually for me is, should you learn Python 2 or Python 3? Well, 
when it comes to Python, Python 2 is dead as, as of the end of this year, and there's actually a countdown clock and everything for it. But unfortunately, quite a lot of bioinformatics software, as you know, uh, comes from PhD projects and, uh, and postdoc projects, and then people leave it and then it's never touched again, which means that a lot of code out there is going to be uh, in a pretty bad state come the end of this year when Python 2.7 stops being supported. But of course, it's not going to go away immediately. Um, it just means that it will slowly decline and things will just slowly stop working. So why do people use Python 2 at all right now if it's going to go away this year? Legacy reasons, you know, if you've started a project in Python 2, you just continue to do it, or perhaps that's the variant you learned. There's only minor differences, really, but they make all the, the world a difference. You know, the most obvious one is, say, the print statement. You need brackets in Python 3, whereas in Python 2, you don't. And there's other little minor things. But Python 3 overall is much more stable, and it has some really neat features. So I would go for that one. I think before there was uh, a fair bit, I mean, because people had to change a lot of the, the modules over from Python 2 to Python 3, and that was taking a fair bit of time. If you looked at Python 3, like maybe two years ago or something, you'd find a lot of the modules that you depend on weren't weren't available. And so then you'd sort of stick with two. But, I, but now I'm yet to find a module that isn't Python 3 ready. So that excuse doesn't apply anymore. But that would that would be one of the reasons why people would have been holding back as well. But Python is very uh, useful, particularly I found PyPy is just amazing. It's in a similar way to a CPAN, it's just a repository of libraries and code that you can just go and install stuff from. I suppose the only downside I find with it is it doesn't run unit tests, and so you can download a lot of stuff that's kind of broken as well. So you have to be a little bit careful with it. Lee, what's your opinion of Python from a, a Perl perspective? Okay, I don't like to use Python. It actually it actually forces me to use a certain style, and I don't like to do that. But I, on the other hand, I think that it's wonderful because everyone's on the same page with the styles, and that immediately makes it readable. Is this a white space thing? No, it's, it's actually not a white space thing. Um, I do like the white space. It's fine. You're a hippie, really. <laughs> but the problem, the problem is like no closing brackets. You just kind of have to. So maybe it's an issue of having to like actually make sure you read the white space appropriately between like subroutines or or functions. And I don't particularly like learning all the different modules. <laughs> like if I want to exit, then I have to do something like sys.exit or something. That's weird to me. Just wait till you see Java. Java is just insane compared to Python in, <laughs> in terms of complexity. Like when I first started learning it, you had to type about 10 different things to just to get a simple command, uh, take input from a keyboard, that kind of thing. It's uh, a lot less usable. Yeah, I tried. Actually, I also tried Java for a little bit, and I hated it. I had to go into NetBeans, and I had to click a, a button or something, and it set it made all my getters and setters, like, you have to actually like automate making it so that you can get rid of all this mundane stuff in Java. I hate it. Yeah, it has to be automatic, which Python does very well. It, uh, you know, you have the convention with underscore underscore denoting a private method and then not. It's quite, quite a nice way to do it. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Public static <laughs> void main args makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I will say some nice things about, about Python, though. Like, I really do like, first of all, okay, it's readable all the time. Love that. Another thing I like is that any one of your scripts can be turned into a library automatically. That's really cool. You can import one of your scripts. If they're written the right way. Mm. Yes. Oh, but I have to go back to bashing it. But because I don't like the concurrency. I can't. It has uh, the, the global lock. Is that what it's called? The global interpreter lock? Yes. 
and it makes it almost impossible to do threads appropriately. Yeah, that is a serious pain in the butt with with Python. I mean, it, what there is a there is a way of doing it. You do have to rely heavily on pools and queues, and everything sort of has to be. I mean, there's nothing. It's not truly parallel because yeah, because of the gil, everything's sort of done sequentially. But you then have to do it in such a way that you're alternating in your task. And that's a bit, it's a bit strange. As a computer scientist, I love this kind of thing because it, it keeps the mere mortals out and then keeps me in a job for the rest of my life. So <laughs> you know, let, let's make the barrier as high as possible. Well, one of the, well, I think, I think I'll, I'll give a counterpoint of what, why I liked Python or why I stuck with it over other languages is that if you're just starting out and you want to do anything, you can do more or less whatever you'd want for programming in, in Python. Probably not as well as other languages, but you can make a start. Like you can make a start with making graphs. You're not going to make it as well as R, but you've got graphing libraries. You can do stuff with with threading, but it's not that great. You can do with um, things like web frameworks like Django and so on. You can build a website. So everything that you'd want to do as a generalist language, Python's a good place to, to start. And you can make it very fast as well. If you use Cython, you can literally just write your Python and then it compiles down to C, which is just phenomenal. I've, I had an experience where I wrote a piece of code and handcrafted C, and then someone, you know, I spent weeks on this, and then someone next to me just wrote it in, in Cython, you know, a little bit of Python, bang, there you go, compiled to C, and his was just as fast as my C version. So I was pretty annoyed by that. And you don't necessarily even have to do that. A lot of the, if you're using a, a lot of the, uh, Number crunching libraries like NumPy and, Sci and SciPy, the underlying um, the underlying code is executed as baseline C code. It's like super heavily efficient, and so you've you're just got a direct line to using those modules and using those algorithms, and you don't have to do any extra compilation, any extra writing on your part. You just gop straight to those uh, when you need it, and yeah, they're as good as the C libraries. Oh, that's awesome. So what about some of the other languages uh, that are out there that people use? Lee? Well, I know we have a bunch of programming languages in front of us. I'm going to skip straight ahead to Rust because um, I decided a while ago I was going to try to leapfrog ahead. I was I was kind of done with, with trying to learn Python, but I was going to go straight for that, that new and shiny Rusty programming language called Rust. Um, and, it, and it is super difficult to, to get started, but they have a really great uh, training manual on it. And I went. I promised myself I would go through it step by step, and I did. I didn't skip any steps as I learned it, and it's awesome. So steep learning curve, and the saying goes in Rust: if it can be compiled, then it will work. <laughs> Meaning that if you if you have any misstep, it actually won't even compile. It's so, it's so heavily safeguarded, so so on the side of making you like forcing you to do error checking. Um, but it's fast. Okay. So, uh, well, I don't, I haven't, done, I'm not familiar with, I mean, I've heard of, but I'm not familiar with Rust. What is a language that, it's uh, an older language that it would be most similar to? I mean, that sounds a bit more Fortran, what you're describing. Maybe. I don't have a lot of experience with Fortran. I see Rust being compared to things like Fortran and C in terms of speed tests and in terms of everything else. And Rust is, well, maybe, I don't know if I'm looking at it with rose-colored glasses, you know, but um, the the blogs that I see just show it having a similar benchmark to the older languages. What's the bio library like? That's a good question. Um, I haven't used it too much, actually. <laughs> but I know that it's still in development. I know that people still have critiques on it. I think that the future for it looks good, but right now it's still being developed, is all I can say. I did develop my own 
fastq parser, which I think everyone does for every language just because it's a four-line format. Absolutely. It's, it's not a four-line <laughs> format. You should know. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Sorry. But um yeah, that was a that was a good callback. <laughs> anyway, um but but developing it to read fastq files was a really good experience for me and if anyone wants to check out my fasten uh set of scripts, um we can link to it in the show notes. Do you guys have any um experience with Julia or Go? No, but I've uh, a lot of experience with Ruby. Uh, from for about two years I was doing Ruby and Rails and Ruby and that was quite a beautiful language. The only problem I found with that was that it was very me- memory inefficient. And I remember having a conversation with a guy saying, oh, well, we have to parse this huge file. You know, it's 50 megabytes and we need, you know, 100 gigs of RAM. And he just kind of looked at me going, what are you talking about? You know, just use Perl and you'll use a teeny tiny fraction of that. <laughs> wow. Why, why is it memory inefficient then? I'm, I'm really curious. Well, I'm going back 10 years now, but... Uh, just at the time, it was uh, it was built for websites and things like that, and not necessarily optimized for, uh, say, the kind of stuff that we do. Okay. On our forum, um, people are really into to Julia too. Um, there's this guy who seems to discuss it. He he created the Mentalist MLST software, um, and he says that if you use Julia and you are a fan of of neat programming in Python, he says that it's faster than Python, it's compiled, and it looks really pretty. Have you guys had any experience with it? Well, the first time I loaded up Julia, it required four gigs of RAM just to get the command prompt, and then that's my last experience with it. (laughs) Hopefully it's improved. I had a look at some of the documentation. It looks really nice for data scientists, or if you're going in the machine learning route and so on. Yeah, it looked great. I'm always, always hesitant about exotic languages, though. We can check that off to just saying that we're, none of us have used Julio and we're, we would be excited to try it, I guess. Or maybe, or maybe not if it, the command line takes four gigabytes of RAM. I don't know. What about, what about, <laughs> I mean, we haven't mentioned, the elephant in the room is obviously things like JavaScript. Everything's on the web. Why wouldn't we do our bioinformatics in a browser? Well, the problem there is that conceptually it's a very different way of programming and you have to think about events and all these kind of other things you wouldn't normally. And so the complexity of the programming becomes quite substantially more difficult. Like if you think about programming in general, most of the scripts we use will have like a, a for loop and an if statement and, you know, pretty much not much else. You know, those are the, the heart of everything. Whereas a JavaScript, if you have events going back and forth and you're sending uh, bits of data here and there and you're interacting with different things, then that that's just blows your mind, you know, and it is much more difficult for a beginner to get into that. That's true, but you do get around. It is therefore then inherently built around concurrency. So you get that for free. Get that, that you don't have to do anything about once you get your head around it. And I'd just like to say JavaScript and Java are not the same thing. They're not even remotely alike. <laughs> but it does bring us on something else, which is static versus uh, dynamic typing or uh, compiled versus interpreted, which is a very big thing. You get a, lo- a lot of uh, bioinformaticians will only have exposure to uh, dynamic or uh, interpreted languages like uh, Perl or Python, but there is a whole heap of other languages out there like C, C, C++, Java, which are where you have to take your code, compile it down to machine code or bytecode, and then run it. So that it's kind of a two-step process, and you can't uh, do things like uh, change types very easily on the fly compared to Python, which it just kind of compiles as it goes along. What about you, Lee? Have you learned uh, much on the static end? 
Um, like I said, I've been going more into Rust, but you know, for anything I do day to day, I stick with Perl. It's just it's it's benchmarked about twice as slow as a compile language usually, or maybe three times. But that's on the same level as as something like Python or something like that. And the whole point of using um, this dynamic coding language is just it reduces the human time. Okay, the computer is three times slower, but I also finished it in an hour, you know? Yeah, that's true, because computer time is very, very cheap. Yes. But people are very, very pricey. <laughs> yeah, we, we, are, we value our times. <laughs> well, that brings us on to another point, uh, which is employability. All these different languages have different market salaries, and uh, they publish lists of how much developers earn on average for different programming languages. And say, for example, PHP will be right down the bottom. It's kind of a mass market, very easy for people to learn language. And it's mostly used for kind of the web stuff. But then at the upper end, you have like things like Go, and they command enormous salaries, particularly people who want to go and work for Google, for example. But actually, I remember back in the day, Go was a different language. And then Google misappropriated the name. I was very disappointed with that. I was very confused for years. You know, this obscure language Go has suddenly had a huge, big resurgence. No, someone invented a new language. <laughs> very disappointed. Wait, so somebody made a different language called Go also? No, there there was a language called Go, and then Google made a second language called Go about 20 years later. Oh my gosh, I had no idea, actually. Yeah, Google should have learned. But anyway, uh, in terms of uh, salaries, like there can be enormous difference. You know, it could be the difference between earning thirty thousand a year and a hundred thousand a year, depending on what language you go into. So you have to be careful. But then there can be short-lived language uh, salary increases. Like COBOL was huge around the year two thousand because, or salaries are huge because people had to go back into all these old banking systems and fix them for the Y two K issue. And people made a lot of money then, but since then, you know, it, it hasn't been as profitable. Interesting. So choose wisely. The other problem, though, is as a manager, hiring people for all these different languages can be an issue. So I try and limit the number of languages on my team so that I don't have like five different languages for which I have to hire five different people who can't work on any of these other projects. It just becomes a nightmare. So you kind of have to be careful on that other end not to spread yourself too thinly because no one can be an expert in everything that's true just on that especially if you're putting out software that you're expecting to be consumed by the community or you're working on larger software projects it's it's really it's really uh, difficult if someone's written uh, a bioinformatics script in, in one of these more obscure languages or more exotic languages and you're trying to get it packaged and get it to work and you don't you're not familiar with it and you don't really understand why it's not working, why the compiler is not working on this architecture or whatever. And that's quite difficult. I mean, if you want these more standard languages, your Perl, Python, Java's, C's and whatever are much more, much more amenable to the community. And since everything we're doing now is more about collaboration, it's, I think it's better to at least stick to the, the mainline core languages that pe people know. Which brings us back, to, which brings us to a final question, I suppose, which is, with that and with with given all of that, will these new languages replace Perl and Python as the key languages for bioinformatics? Maybe, but we'll see in about ten years. 
Oh, that's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the short answer is no, but after everything you said, like having to, to for example, having to hire COBOL people to fix old code, who knows? I think you're right, 10 years. Well, if you look at the physics community, they are all locked into Fortran. And, you know, Fortran is a fairly old language from, I think, the 70s, you know? So I don't think we're necessarily going to see a change overnight. I think communities lock into a language and then everyone, you know, agrees informally that this is what we're going to use. And that's pretty much it, you know? Change is very slow after that. And bioinformatics is very new. We made, I suppose, the decision to go Perl first and then found Python is a bit better as a community. And now it seems like we're sticking with that. I think it would be quite difficult to... I mean... Before, there wasn't so much bioinformatics tools or bioinformatics software out there, but now if we had to switch the entire code base to some other language, there's such a, there's such a huge degree of inertia now that I don't see it moving very quickly to, to some other language. Not as quickly as it did that we saw. We saw like over a few years a shift from Perl to Python. I, don't, I think it'll be much, much longer if we did a similar shift to some other language. I think if Perl had kept up um, expanding the language at a rapid pace and if Perl 6 had come along within a few years, maybe we would have all kind of stayed with Perl. But Python seemed to be the natural progression to get all that extra functionality that was missing from Perl. I mean, Perl 6 has been in development hell for, what, 14 years now, I think? A little while, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually very surprised that there was a quick shift. I think you're right about in a few years. I I even tr- so you mentioned PHP a couple of times in different contexts. I actually tried to make a shift to PHP at one point, and people completely ignored it. I think that um, number one, people at the time were into Perl, and number two, number two, uh, PHP is just too obscure for for bioinformatics right now, and and people were basically informally locked into Perl at the time, and now into Python. There was just no reason to use that PHP code. So I did a lot of PHP uh, during my PhD as a side project, uh, doing websites, and I found it to be a difficult language to program in. And at the root of it appeared to be that the the very base of the language had loads of people who could edit and funda- change the fundamentals of the language, and there's very little control, so it grew organically. Whereas with, say, C or with other programming languages, it's very much locked down. People discuss any changes in great detail. There's lots of community engagement before they make even the smallest of change, and PHP didn't have any of that. So you ended up with crazy things like the triple equals or you know about 10 different ways to print something out to the screen. You know, it became a little bit unwieldy. Hopefully they've fixed it in the intervening years. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't go PHP for bioinformatics these days. <laughs> I forgot about the t- triple equals. Good good uh, recall. But, of course, you know, should we be doing this anyway at all? Should we be writing scripts? Or should we just sit there and uh, bash the, the keyboard? Of course, this is a rhetorical question. <laughs> So are you saying are you going back to the old question of of what questions not to ask? I'm just asking more generally. I recall a few years ago that there was an XKCD comic basically questioning should you go and automate that task and it had uh, a comparison between how long it how often you did a task and how much time you'd shave off. And interestingly, a lot of tasks which I I don't know yeah, I should probably automate that it will probably not save me any time in, in the long run because it would take me longer to write it. So you have to be, I suppose, careful about what you automate and what you don't automate because often it's cheaper just to 
keep on doing it. Mm-hmm. Good KCD reference. Yeah, but that's absolute sacrilege. Why wouldn't you automate everything? <laughs> <laughs> because I don't have 200 developers at my disposal. <laughs> yes. But actually saying that, you know, if you have a community and if everyone in the entire community is spending five minutes a week doing a task, then actually maybe it should be automated. So we talked a lot about uh, Perl versus Python versus everything else. And at first I thought that we were going to go into the direction of, this is just a question not to ask, but there actually is some real importance on which language to learn. And it seems like the community really is heading straight for Python or is already there. So I think that was really enlightening, guys. And thank you so much, everyone else, for listening in. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes or Google Play. And if you don't like the podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute. Thank you.